I was uh, reading about a group in, uh, in Japan that were struggling over what to call their citizens who were in their late 50s and their 60s because there was a term that had been very common for, for many, many years that, uh, that was referring to this age group as the Rojin. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but anyone who knows Japanese can come up afterwards and help me say that better. Rojin, an aged person. And the people in their late 50s and 60s said, you know, this is not really a helpful term for us because uh, we're still holding down jobs, we're working full-time, and then we're getting referenced with, with this. It's not helping us. And so uh, they have a, uh, an organization there, actually part of the government, the Health and, and Welfare uh, uh, division that said Rogen was no longer an appropriate word to describe the demographic. So they said, let's have a contest and let's see if there can be another word that is given that would, that would, uh, that would uh, help us to understand this group of people, that would describe them. And uh, the article said over 300,000 words were submitted or 300,000 nominations of what to call this demographic were given and they selected one of them as the winner. And so rather than using the word rojin, which means aged person, they used the word jitsunen, which is a compound word, I'm told. Jitsu, which means harvest or fruit, and then the ending means age. So it translates the age of harvest or the age of fruitfulness. And I thought, what a fitting description to have people in this demographic that are, that are being referenced in, in terms of their productivity, in terms of what it is that they, are, that they are bringing to the world and to the society. And for me, it reminded me of the body of Christ. To think of the faithfulness, the, the testimonies, the, the, the experience, the wisdom, and the fruitfulness that comes from those who are further down the path. It reminds me of Psalm 92. It says this, the righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. And then look at the rest of that. They will still, what does it say? Bear fruit in old age. That's part of God's design, isn't it? That, that, that all of the, the days, every generation that we're in, whether, whether you consider yourself a millennial or what's the generation Y, all the way up to, to senior adults or what some even reference as super seniors, right? Uh, whatever generation, whatever demographic, what are we called to be? We're called to be faithful. We're called to be fruitful. And to recognize and see that is a way to honor the Lord. And in fact, this is indeed the topic of our consideration today. As Ms. Meyer has already said, we're going to be thinking about a life that bears fruit. John chapter 15, I invite your attention to John's gospel. We uh, will pick back up in our series thinking about the I am statements of Jesus. And uh, we're going to see that living a life for him is a life that bears fruit. So as we begin that, let me ask it in the form of a question. Do you want to live a life that bears fruit? Do you want your life to be fruitful? Because that, 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 that desire, the, the intentionality of that is really where all of this begins. Is that your desire to make a difference in the things that matter most? You see, our spiritual lives, they don't have to be stagnant. They don't have to be unproductive, stale, status quo versions of 
Christianity. You know, that's not what the design is. But all too often, what can happen? We can do what? We can just settle for it. We can just say, that's, that's good enough. That's, that's enough. This is, this is all. I don't want to go too far. I don't want to go too deep. I'll, I'll just settle here. And yet, Christ said that we are called to be fruitful. And in fact, we're going to see that word over and over in these verses this morning. And so I ask you, church family, do we want to be a fruitful church? Do we want to be a faithful church? Do we want to see growth? And I'm speaking, yes, of spiritual growth and also growth as we reach new people. I think the key, the key that we need to understand is found right here in John 15. And we're going to be looking at a lot of this in, in terms of personal application, but, but also run it through the grid of what it means to us as a gathered body as well. In fact, we've referenced a book many, many times called The Trellis and the Vine, which really takes this passage and, and speaks into the life of ministry and, 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 and the church family. And so, so we can obviously see a lot of application out of John 15. We are designed to have an authentic, dynamic, and growing walk with Christ, each and every one of us. And it's not a matter of, of understanding the right strategy or coming up with, with even the, 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 the next uh, resource or book. It's, 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 it's all found in Christ. It's all found in abiding in Him. This morning we will see that this is the key for the kind of life that Christ desires for us. In fact, it's the final I am statement of Jesus. We've seen this will be the seventh one. There are seven of them in the book of John. Last week I did a recap of those, those uh, statements, so I won't do that again. We also looked and saw how this, this divine name that God gave himself in responding to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 3, uh, when, he, when he spoke of, 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 of being the, uh, the, the, the great I am, excuse me, Exodus chapter 3, and he says, I am who I am. And so as Jesus is, is using these metaphors, he's intentionally connecting them to the words, I am. And make no mistake, he was making quite a proclamation, wasn't he? In fact, every time he made one of these statements, there were people that got, got ruffled about it and got upset about it because they, they thought in some ways it might be blasphemous. Here he is taking the name of God upon himself. And he did it intentionally. And so for us today, it gives us insight into who he is. And in this particular one, it even gives us insight into how we can relate to him, both speaking of him and our position in him. Now, last week, we were also in John's gospel, John chapter 14. Do you remember the setting? If you were here with us, they were, uh, the, the, Jesus was with the disciples and they were gathered together where? In the Oh, man, why do I do this week after week? I ask myself that. <laughs> Where were they at? They were in the... Okay, good. All right, I'll come back. All right, we'll, we'll do it. They were in the upper room with the disciples. This is where he washed the feet. They had the meal together. And do you remember the tone of what was happening? Were the disciples really excited and eager, or were they, were they, were they afraid? Were they confused? Do you remember? They, they, they were worried. They were nervous because they thought this was when triumph was coming. And instead, Jesus is talking about his coming death. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute here. You're, gonna, you're leaving us? And he's telling them, you can't go where I'm going, at least not yet. 
And so all of a sudden, he begins getting peppered with questions. And he begins chapter 14 by saying, let not your heart be troubled, right? So he's coming along. These are final hours of his life. And he's giving the disciples their final instruction, their final counsel. This is referenced as the upper room discourse as they're in that upper room together. But chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, let's rise, let's get up, let's leave from this room. And where's his next destination? The Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he'll be betrayed. That's where he will be arrested. That's where he'll be led away. So here we are, chapter 15. The disciples are confused. They're wondering what's going on. They've left the upper room. And Jesus is talking as they go. That's what we assume chapters 15 and 16 are. Now let me ask you a question here. How many disciples did Jesus have in the upper room? How many disciples were there at the beginning? Twelve, right? How many are now here? Eleven. That's important. That's drilling down into the context a little bit because what we're about to read makes sense in light of the fact that there's one disciple missing. And that's Judas. Judas isn't there. And so keep that in mind as we look together at John 15. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now think about that context. Think about what the disciples are, are, are what, what thoughts must be swirling in their mind as one of them who had been with them for years, few years, is now gone. No longer to be found. No longer with them on this journey. John 15 is the imagery of a grapevine. And as you think about the, the, uh, the, the, the grapevine, you think about the fields, you understand the idea of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, of the vine and the branch. You see the, the picture there. This was something that would have been familiar back in that day. And in fact, some commentators speculate that as, as they were making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, they may have been going through the Kidron Valley. 
And they may have had vineyards off to the side. And Jesus was using those, those vineyards as a teaching moment, as a metaphor to describe himself and his disciples. And others say, well, maybe, maybe they were going by the temple. Because as, as, as you see the big doors of the temple, these huge gates, what was inscribed over these mammoth doors, this mammoth entry, but a grapevine was carved in probably out of gold, right? This, this beautiful picture, this imagery of a, of a vineyard. And, and if, you, if you had a coin from that day and you, you picked up the coin, you would, you would see minted on that coin a picture of something similar to this. Grapes, a, a vineyard picture. It was part of their identity as the nation of Israel. In fact, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but in Isaiah chapter 5, there is uh, one of many places that speak to the nation of Israel as a vineyard. Isaiah 5, I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. He dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes but it yielded worthless grapes. You continue reading in, in chapter 5, and he, he goes on to say, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do. It, didn't, it yielded worthless grapes, so I'm about to remove its hedge. It will be consumed. Its wall will be uh, torn down and trampled. Do you recall the history of Israel? What happened in different seasons, in different times, when, when indeed they were overtaken? Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in, he expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. So we could spend a lot of time with that, but what am I trying to say? When, when, when people in that day and in that time heard the word vine and vineyard, who did they think of? They thought of their nation. And Jesus has said, I, I am, I am the vine. He is the one that had been prophesied. He is the one that had come to, to, to produce something that was not worthless, but that was of great worth. And those who were connected with him were part of this new age. So, as we think about the context of the passage, let's move to the first point this morning. The first one is this. Consider your personal connection to Jesus. Notice that the location or the position must be in Christ. It's more than a, than a belief that Christ exists. It's a personal relationship that begins by trusting in Him. And we're going to see how that unfolds in the idea of abiding and remaining. But I, I want to be very clear. It's not knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's that personal relationship. And, and some would say, well, wait a minute. You know, I, can, I, I know that, that I was told that I was, I was baptized when I was young or I was, I was christened when I was young or, or, or I, I went through confirmation when I was young. And I would just say, this isn't about ceremony. Not that, I'm not criticizing ceremony. We have ceremony. But if that's what we're placing our hope in, ceremony and relationship are two different things. And others are saying, well, well, you know, you don't know my family. I was, I was raised in a Christian home. 
In fact, my, my grandpa or my uncle, he was a, he was a pastor. And I would just stop and say, but does, does that mean you have that personal relationship? It's great that they did. Nothing against a Christian home or a relative that's a pastor, right? But that doesn't ensure that you are connected to Christ personally. So think through that. Because in our culture today, there's confusion. Some think, well, it's just a matter of, of believing that Christ lived. No, that's not the belief that's being spoken of here in the New Testament. We begin here with our position in Christ. We said last week in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is flowing out of chapter 14 that we see the connection the personal connection. In fact, if you look at these eight verses, Jesus uses the pronoun you eight, uh, 11 different times. Very personal. Very personal. You see that word repeated. You, you, you this, you that. You abide in me. I abide in you. So it's a personal connection. But we also see that the word fruit is used. In these verses, six times. It's used more than that in the chapter. And so we see by bringing these two words together that the connection must be personal so that it can be fruitful. And we'll pick up on that idea of fruitfulness later. Look at verses 2 and 3. We get the idea here of, of, of pruning. And as you read verse 2 about pruning and then verse 3 about, about being cleaned, you, it almost reads like there's two different metaphors going on. But really, the word for cleaning in verse 3 is the same word for pruning in verse 2. It's, it's, it's meaning like pruned to the point of being stripped clean, stripped bare. And so, so we have this idea that, that, that God is the gardener and that he's working. He's doing a work in us. He's pruning. Now, gardening and caring for plants is not my expertise, just like I don't know how to pronounce Japanese, I really don't know how to care very well with, for plants either. Now, I know some of you all can. In fact, I'm amazed at what Steve Durst can do. He's the, he's the guy that takes care of, of all the plants and the flowers outside our building. They are beautiful, aren't they? I mean, I'm amazed at, 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 the, at the talent God has given him. I don't have that. I don't have that. But, but I had a, a neighbor that didn't know that. And he, he went out of town and he said, Ryan... You think you could come and, and take care of my plants while I'm gone? Man, I want to be a good neighbor, so how can you say no? So, yeah, sure, I can, I can do that. So I, I said, you're going to have to show me, though. So I, I went over last week, and he showed me the different things, and I was, oh, man, we got water hoses in the front, we got water hoses in the back, we got all these pots, and some of them are small, and some of them are big, and some of them are trees, and some of them are ferns, and we got potted plants and flowers. I just hadn't seen all that before, and so I said, okay. Well, how long do you stand there with the hose? <laughs> and he looked at me like you're looking at me. Like, okay, all right, well, so I did it. And I'm, I'm working on it, and I come back a day or two later, and I think, man, I think maybe, maybe I'm not watering these enough. They're not looking that good. Or, no, wait a minute, maybe I'm putting too much water on them, right? Maybe I'm flooding these things, and, and it's not good. And so I, I come back the next day, and it doesn't look real good in the back. I thought, oh man, I know enough to know that there's not a way I'm going to regrow this stuff in time before he gets back. But I look a little closer, and I, I figured out what it was. He had some deer come up onto his deck, started nipping these things off. You could have real clean cuts, right, all the way across. 
And it was almost like these West County deer must have been saying, hey, over here, over here behind this house, you wouldn't believe the buffet because there must have been several of them. Now, he comes back this afternoon. I almost texted him to tell him what happened. I thought, you know what? Just let him finish his vacation, right? He, <laughs> well, let him come back, and we can, I'll put my arm around his shoulder, and we'll, we'll look at his plants together. But uh, I am not a gardener. So what do I know about pruning? Not a lot, but I did read this. When plants are pruned, there are several things that can happen. One, nutrients are focused on areas that need to grow rather than just nutrients going to the entire, entire plant. There's other times that plants have to be pruned so that sunlight can come through and hit other parts of the plant so that the photosynthesis can work. There's other times that pruning has to happen to remove dead branches because if they're left there, disease can, can come upon the plant. So it's an important process. And the pruning is for the good of the plant. So let's stop for a minute. Let me ask you this. Is pruning a punishment for the plant? No. So think about that in the spiritual context. The metaphor speaking about the pruning, what's happening in our lives, it's for our good, it's for our growth. It's so that we can continue to produce more fruit. It's not about punishment. Where, did the, where was the punishment taken care of? Right there. It's not about punishment. It's about pruning. For the purpose of bearing more fruit. This is the activity of God. In fact, verse 1, he's described as the gardener. Pruning and working to cause growth. Removing, here's the key, removing those things that do not stimulate growth. And I struggled with this. And I worked on a list and I pulled things off of it and I had several bullet points and I deleted them and I thought, how, how do I make a, a list here? Of, of ways in which pruning happens because it, it, can, it can take a lot of forms, can't it? But here's my attempt at giving you a few things. At times, the pruning is of useless pursuits, useless pursuits that take the energy and take the attention to something other than Christ. Here's another one. Things that we love more than Him. What are those things? I don't know. I don't know what they are for you, what they are for me. They may be different. Maybe it's fleshly desires that are pruned away. As part of our growth, as we abide in Him, we're able to discern and see that, that, that battle between the flesh and the soul and see those things that are warring against the soul and pruning out those fleshly desires. The pruning is to remove things that hold back growth. Here's how J.D. Greer said it. He said, the gardener, takes out of our lives only those things that are a loss to keep and a gain to lose. So think about that. Think about that pruning process in the life of abiding in Him. Now there's another theme that I want to touch on, and, and I'm, I'm going to touch on it briefly because there's going to be more to come on this one because it, it could be a little confusing. But if you read verse 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, He removes. You might ask the question, you might ask, is it possible for someone to be a branch and then be cut off and taken away? Important question. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now this, this could be very troubling 
for a follower of Christ. You think, could that happen to me? Now again, think about the context of John 15. What just happened that really rocked the world of the disciples? They lost one of their own, right? And so here Jesus is giving some context. Yeah, there are two different groups. There are those that abide and remain, and there are those that don't. In fact, Jesus has talked about this in, uh, in many different places, about what it means to, to be an outwardly focused disciple or one who is a disciple inwardly. And we see that the, 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 uh, the abiding or the remaining in Christ as the difference between the two. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 9. He taught that there would be people who would attach themselves to him as outward disciples, but not truly follow him. They would call themselves disciples, even though they really were not. Two different groups. So if you read the passage carefully, you can see these two groups even in chapter 15. There is that group that is represented by Judas. Judas had all kinds, all kinds of uh, motivation to be near to Christ. And next week, we're going to have a message about Judas. Next week, we're going to have a message about people who have been like Judas, that at one time were close to Christ and seemingly were followers and disciples, but now have nothing to do with him, have denied him, have turned from him for good, so it seems. Do you know anyone like that? I mean, sure, we all do, don't we? We all know people that at one point seemingly were close and then, and then fell away and we struggle. Were are they, were they saved? Are they still saved? You know, is it possible that one could be saved and, and no longer be saved? Which I'll go ahead and say that's not possible. Everlasting life is truly everlasting. But next week, we're going to have Lee White speak on this very topic. When he was in seminary, he did his master's thesis on Judas and connecting that to the, the, uh, the, the, the people that seemingly fall away. Now, if I remember, Lee, it's over 100 pages, right? It, it's quite a thesis. He's going to summarize it for us in one message. And talk about timing. I mean, here we are with, with Judas, right? Talk about timing. There are, there, there, are, there are many of us that have heavy hearts and, and ask this question. And so I think that, that you will find great encouragement next Lord's Day. Uh, with, uh, with his message. So we have the two groups. Those represented by Judas. Those represented by the other disciples. They are abiding. They are remaining. Are they perfect? No. Think of what Peter's going to do. Right? But as we continue to follow their lives. What do they demonstrate? What do they demonstrate before the Sanhedrin? What do they demonstrate as they go from city to city. And go be before synagogues. And they go before, for, for, uh, before philosophers and people with the Holy Spirit living within them, right? Now, that's a huge distinction, but yet they remain and they abide. And so these are the two different groups. Here is another passage that describes these two groups. John chapter 6. Remember when we were there a few weeks ago? John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Do you remember that one? And how later in the chapter, there are people that are so angry that he would call himself that, that they're ready to take care of him. Well, here's, here's what happened at the end of that chapter, verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, and I love his response. Look at this verse. Lord, to whom will we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. Now, the people that left, what were they called in this, in this passage? Disciples, right? You read that and go, wait a minute, were there more than 12? Well, yeah, there were, there were a lot of people that connected and attached. Some were true followers and some were just in it for a season, seeing what they could get, but not true. They didn't remain. These two groups over and over again in Scripture are seen. John speaks a lot about this. He writes more than any other author using the word abide and using the word remain. And in fact, in his little book later in the New Testament, the book of 1 John, chapter 2, the same author here writes, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Wait a minute, there's a John 15 ver- uh, word showing up here in 1 John 2. Because that's, that, that was his understanding, of course, inspired by the Spirit. They would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. So in John 15, we have a contrast of two groups. And the comparison gives us good reason to pause and to consider our identity. Because there are people, listen to me, that are connected to church, connected to church life, connected to ministry, connected to small group. There are people that are connected to an entity that are not connected to Christ. And there's a big difference. It's a matter of abiding in Him, finding salvation, and as we sang this morning, all of our hope from Him. Not an entity, not a people, but in Him. Coming to Him as He is. That's the result there of being connected to the vine. All right, that's our first point. And the next two are going to go by really fast, I promise. First point, consider your personal connection to Jesus. Second point is this, receive the spiritual nourishment from Jesus. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So we find another key word here. The word abide is used numerous times in chapter 15. What does it mean? It means to remain stable or fixed in a state or to continue in a place, a position. To abide has to do, now this may surprise you, with the, with the aspect of being, not doing. Okay? We're not talking about activity here. We're talking about belonging, about being in Him, remaining in Christ. Sometimes we confuse these and we, we put activity above abiding. But Jesus puts abiding first. Now, will activity come? Sure, those works come. In fact, they're, they're important. And we're going to look at them in the next point here. 
But we, we can't just jump straight to the activity. We can't jump straight to the works and think, okay, that's it. Now, that's, that's our human thinking, but that's not how it works with Christ. It begins by being in Him, belonging, abiding, understanding that, that we cannot produce life on our own. It's not our strategy. It's not our winsomeness. It's not our ideas. It's Christ. It's Him being at work in us and knowing that He can produce far more fruit through us than we could ever produce on our own. Now, I got a uh, something. Sorry. All right, nobody ate one. That's good. They don't look all that appetizing anyway, though, do they? All right, we got, we got a branch here. And we've got three small apples that are growing. And I know some of you are already judging me out there <laughs> for cutting off a branch of perfectly good apples, right? I, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, there's, even, there's even some smaller ones that, are about to, that were about to come. So, what do you think about this what do you think is going to happen to these three? I, I cut this off this morning off of an apple tree, okay? Don't tell Steve Durst, all right? I, I don't know. He might not be happy about that one. But we need, we need some help here. What, what do you think? What can we do for this? I mean, now that it's been cut, what can we do? I mean, we're, we're some smart people here. What do you think? Is there anything we could do to get these apples and these small blooms to full, healthy fruit? I mean, I, I've watched this tree for years. These eventually would be red apples. How can we do that? Yeah, we're out of luck, aren't we? We can't tell this thing to try harder. There's nothing we can do to, to increase its growth and produce more. It's been cut. It's been disconnected from the trunk. This, oh. <laughs> it's proving my point. Someone's going to fall over these. But you know what? Sometimes that's how we, we try to live life. Disconnected. They, well, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just do more. I'll just work harder. I'll just, I'll just listen to this strategy or this, this conventional wisdom or I'll look at, at what someone else is doing and try to replicate that. And what are we missing with all of that? We're missing that connection, that abiding. And what do we expect will happen? The word says, no fruit, no fruit. It's impossible, John 15 tells us. No way that we'll have fruit. There was a pastor in India who made a call to his friend who's a pastor, a leader here in the States by the name of Francis Chan. And Francis was telling a story, uh, an account about this pastor from India that called him. The pastor in India, very, very fruitful ministry, seen many, many people come to faith in Christ. And the pastor called Francis and he was grieving because one of his American pastor friends had fallen into deep sin, deep sin. And he was weeping on the phone. He was just trying to understand how, how could this happen. And he made an interesting statement to Francis. He said, you know, it seems as if a lot of people think that they, they can only go to Moses when really they can go all the way up the mountain. They just stop with the person. They stop at Moses, and yet, yet, yet they can come all the way up. They can come up, and they can meet, and they can stay with, and they can abide with the great I Am. And yet how often do we do that? We stick around at the bottom of the mountain, 
We look for that next thing, that next fad, that next, that next trick that we think is going to do it for us. And we don't go up the mountain and stay. And I preach that to myself as much as I preach that to us. Because that's the temptation. Try to look for something that's going to make short work and, and produce some fruit in these, in these vines that have been cut off. And there's no hope for this. This branch and these apples have no hope. And our lives disconnected and not abiding to Christ have no hope, no fruit, no potential, no possibility. So what do we do? We instead come to him, understanding that he alone is sufficient. Now I'm convinced that the reason so many followers are fatigued spiritually and emotionally is because the primary focus has been activity for Christ rather than abiding in Christ. And again, that's a word for me as much as it is for anyone. Replacing activity for abiding. Folks, Christ has to be the focus. Abiding in Jesus, here's the takeaway, means to totally depend on Him and allow His life to flow through us uninhibited and unrestricted. And that's why that pruning happens as well. Christ has to be that life-supplying vine. How does it happen? Yes, it happens over the long haul as we spend time in the Word. It happens over the long haul as we pray, as we communicate. Remember the personal connection? It happens as we worship, both as a gathered church, but also worshiping individually with Him. Christ has to be that life-supplying vine. And I just want to ask you this. What is your vine? Everybody abides in something. You could point to a person, every person. You could point to any person in this world and find that they are abiding in something. Right? The question is what? What am I abiding in? Are you abiding in Jesus? Final point quickly, number three. Here's the goal. The goal is a life that brings glory to God by producing fruit. Verse 8, my father is glorified. Now I asked earlier, do you want to live a fruitful life? Maybe the question should be, do you want to live a life that glorifies God? Do you want to spend the days, the years, the time that's given and say, God is being glorified through my life? Do we want to be a church that says God is glorified through us, through our gathering here together, through the ministry of fellowship? May God be glorified. Because it's not about us. It's certainly not about me. It's about Him. He is the one. How can we tell if we are abiding in Christ, if we're glorifying Him? Look at the last part of that, that you produce much fruit and proved to be my disciples. As we see here in this text, there is a progression. You can look at verse 2, and you can see fruit referenced. You might want to underline that. You can look at the end of verse 2, and see more fruit referenced. You can jump down to verse 8, and now it says much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. We see a progression. We see spiritual growth. That's part of the design. Now jump down to verse 16. I realize we haven't read this one yet. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you 
to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. I appointed you. Who's speaking here? The great I am. And he's saying, I appointed you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. This is our, these are our marching orders, right? This is a goal of, of, the, of the, the life in Christ to produce fruit. Now, we know it doesn't happen overnight. I can't bring my neighbor's plants back to him by this afternoon, and we can't produce all this fruit just like that. It's, it's remaining and abiding over the long haul, right? Now, fruit takes time. There's a scene from C.S. Lewis's work, The Chronicles of Narnia, that really depicts this, this idea of it taking time. There's a young girl in The Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember her name? Lucy? And uh, she interacts with the lion Aslan, who, who represents who? Christ. It's really, it is a, really a compelling uh, book, compelling film, and she's, uh, she was sent on a great mission by the Christ figure Aslan the lion. She's traveling. She notices the great animal sitting up on a hillside. She runs and throws herself into his mane. There's even a little picture of how this might have uh, looked from the, the movie. She's eager to see him. And listen to what Lucy says when she returns from the journey. She says, Aslan, you're bigger and the majestic creature answers, that is because you are older, little one. Lucy was confused by the remark. And she said, not because you are. You see what she's saying? Is it not because you're a year older that you're bigger? He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. C.S. Lewis was suggesting that as we mature, in our faith, the object of our devotion appears to grow along with us. It happens not because Christ has changed, but because our understanding of him has expanded. Kent Hughes said it this way, expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. Thus, Aslan only appeared to be bigger to Lucy. The real change had taken place within her. Now, couldn't someone just stand up and testify about that today? About that, 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 that big gap that, that was present when you first came to Christ and how it has narrowed the understanding of, of who He is and who you are in Him the longer you've stayed with Him, how it's, it's been clarified. And in doing so, He has been enlarged and you see how great this God really is. The more we learn of God on this journey, the bigger He becomes to us. Well, it's time to wrap it up. Some of you just said too late, but we're going to do it anyway. Should have wrapped it up a few minutes ago. Conclusion, practical steps for abiding in Christ. First of all, number one, don't try to do it on your own. Listen to me, the greatest enemy is self-sufficiency. The greatest enemy is self centeredness and that's what pride will keep us thinking we can just do it on our own but verse says verse 5 says apart from me you can do nothing secondly keep Christ at the center 
Keep Jesus in that place where you are abiding in him and he is expanding over your life and over your heart and over your understanding. Let the pruning take place. It might be a separate point, really. When those things are identified that are being taken away for our good, let it happen. And finally, prioritize Scripture reading. We've been even prioritizing Colossians 1, attempting to memorize it, right, this summer. These are the kinds of things that help us abide, that God uses to minister to our souls and to enlarge our understanding of who He is. Abide in prayer, abide in worship. Verse 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want. See that connection to prayer? Prayer. 